This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. When I was a middle school kid, our youth pastor took us to the largest state park in West Virginia, Wakola, I'm sorry, uh, Watoga State Park, and it's about 10,000 plus acres, and I'm not really sure what he was thinking, but he decided to, to he was the only chaperone for this trip, and so we, there was like 12 of us boys that were there, and we went up and we began to hike a, a well-marked trail. And obviously, just trying to do this by himself, he positioned himself at the front of the line. He was going to be the leader, and he cautioned us, stay close, guys, stay, stay near me, don't lose sight of me. Of course, you know, that's all you need to do for middle school boys, right? Just tell them once, and they'll, they'll stay close. So as you can imagine, it didn't take long for this, this line to begin to spread out. And pretty soon, uh, people were all over the place, climbing trees, running off the trail, uh, just doing crazy things. But by the end of the hike, we looked around, and everyone was still following. Some were following pretty far off. Some were right behind the youth pastor. But everyone was following except one guy. Eddie Shin, who was a year younger than me, was not part of the group any longer. He was nowhere to be found. And so we began to yell and scream out his name. Um, we didn't know what to do, really, exactly. We started just to kind of spread out in the area and begin to shout out for him and so on, but he was not to be found. Well, in a few minutes, a park ranger drove up the road, and we got his attention, and we told him we lost one of our kids. And, and he got out of his truck, got his radio, and began to uh, call for help. And in that very moment... In the woods right near there, Eddie Shin emerged out of the forest and walked out. He was uh, not far from our group, but he was definitely lost for an hour or so. And this story reminds me a lot of what maybe this group of people right here, when it comes to following Jesus, may be like. That there are some people who you're following Jesus, but honestly, you're probably not near the front of the line at this moment. Right? You, you, you have a desire to know Jesus you have a desire to follow Jesus, but for one reason or another, your following of Christ isn't going so well, but you're still following. But sadly, I would think that there, in a group this size, there's somebody here, maybe multiple people here, who you're like Eddie Shin, that you at one point pretended or seemed to be part of the group, but the truth is, you're not really following. That you may know the right things to say, you may know all the Christian dialogue and the, and the things that are expected of you, but the truth is that you know in your heart of hearts that you're not truly following Jesus. That you may be religious, but you're not following Jesus. And one of the reasons we're taking so long to go through the book of Mark is because we want to know how did Jesus live his life. Ultimately, it all points toward the crucifixion which we're going to celebrate next week in the this week and then Sunday with the resurrection. But it's all pointing to the cross. But in the midst of his life, we want to see how Jesus lived, what Jesus did. In fact, if you look at 1 John, I think I have it on the screen for you, 1 John 2, 5 and 6, John, one of the disciples, wrote this. He said, By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him with Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Should walk in the same way that he walked. And so as we look at the life of Jesus, we want to see our own lives, how we're doing. How are we following? And in a few weeks, we're going to see a parable of the, the sower and the seeds, which really will break this down even more. But the idea here of that some people appear to be following Jesus, but they lose interest, they get distracted by the things of the world, and they sort of wander off, and they prove by their deserting that they don't know Jesus at all. Others may get off the trail for a while, but ultimately they jump back in and continue to follow, showing that they were truly a disciple. Some are hanging in there barely by the skin of their teeth. Others are passionate. 
They have their eyes upon the leader. They're following him. They're seeking him. They're wanting to know what, how to live like Jesus. And let me just say this. It's one step after another. He doesn't use the imagery of running or sprinting here. He uses the metaphor of just walking like Jesus walked. Just one step after another step. That's most of the Christian life. It's just, I'm consistent. I'm doing the spiritual disciplines. I'm seeking God. I'm being part of a community. I'm loving Jesus. I'm loving my neighbor as I love myself. And it's just step after step after step. And so as we look at our text today, we're going to identify, and as we go closer to the cross in our passages in Mark, we're going to see this more and more, but we're going to identify some groups here, and we're going to identify them, and we're going to see over the weeks how this transitions and transpires, how these groups ultimately prove whether they're with Jesus or they're not with Jesus. So we're in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 19 today. Chapter 3, 7 through 19. Go ahead and find that in your Bibles. And you can also follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible. I use the English Standard Version of the Bible just to let you know if you want to pick up a copy so you can follow along in the version that we read with here. There's some scripture I do reference that won't appear on the screen. Um, let's, let's read verse 7, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdraw, withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and um, Idumea, sorry, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowds, lest they crush him. And he had healed many, so that all who would, had diseases pressed in around him to touch him. And, whoever the, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenergus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the Iscariot, who would betray him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray today as we Look at this passage of Scripture, God, that you will allow your Holy Spirit to teach us uh, the truth of this passage, the timeless truth of this passage, and God, to show us how that we can follow more passionately after Jesus as a result. God, I pray for anyone here who they're uncertain about their spiritual condition today. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will move them and draw them and woo them to yourself. God, may they see you high and lifted up today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. And as has been mentioned several times in this book as we've gone through it, that Jesus' popularity was soaring. Why was it soaring? Because Jesus was doing incredible things. Jesus was healing people. He was performing miracles. People were coming to him, and he was fixing their ailments, fixing their diseases. And also, he was a very entertaining teacher. He told parables. He told stories. They liked that. But what we're going to see here is that these crowds were very fickle followers. In fact, we're going to see that many of them in Palm Sunday, and I'll, I'll show, uh, point this out in a few minutes, Palm Sunday is kind of the apex, the climax of the people who were singing his praises but ultimately fell away because this was not the Jesus they were looking for. And so we, we know that public opinion changes so quickly. Uh, Harrison loves to watch old shows on TV, uh, The Waltons, Andy Griffith, th things like that. And on these shows, you can see that how much Christianity was part of the culture, even back in the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. And how quickly public opinion changes. If you think about the country of England, which is kind of one step removed from post-Christianity more than us, Two-thirds of the people 
profess that they don't believe in a God. They say, we don't believe in a God. I was watching a documentary over the last few days on Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor from England, and it's amazing the number of people who came to his meetings and were taught and were part of his colleges, and he had orphanages for, and homes for families. An amazing work that he was doing, yet just such a short period of time later in, in reality, and you know, England has totally rejected God for the most part. And over and over again in Scripture, God instructs his people to make sure that they train up the next generation. Because the truth is, all we have to do is lose one generation, and we've lost our children. One generation, and we've lost our children. I've alluded to the study before, but this, there was a study, the largest study of its kind was done a few years ago, and where they interviewed over 3,000 American teenagers who claimed to be Christian. And in their interview with these kids, not only did they kind of really dig in to find out what they believed about Jesus and God and the Bible and so on, but they also followed these kids for the next five years to see where they landed uh, later on in young adulthood as far as their religion and spirituality. And it's, it's very sad, the author of this study and then a subsequent book that was done, they had to coin a phrase, a, a, a belief system that many of these young people had defaulted to. And I've given this, this term before, but I want to, to give it again today. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. They said these kids, many of these kids, most of these kids landed on a form of Christianity, which was really no Christianity at all, which was moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me, let me just quickly explain this to you. And as parents, we need to be aware of the fact that it's easy for us as parents and also to inadvertently lead our children astray if we're not teaching them Scripture and we can have the same gospel even though we may never call it this. This idea of moralistic is these kids thought it was very important to be good. They thought that being good was critical, but their idea of good was determined by themselves, not by the scriptures, for the most part, it was just what they came up with, what was good. And we know what the kind of the flavor of our day is, what being good is. It's being tolerant. It's being non-judgmental, It's being open-minded, justice for everyone. And, and it's this idea that there's a sense of moralism they kept, but it was absent of God. And then what really struck me, I see so much in our culture, and as many years as a youth pastor, I saw this coming on, this idea of a therapeutic God. What does that mean? They claim some tenets of Christianity, but the center of their religion was their own happiness. Their own happiness. So this idea was that God and Jesus exist to make me feel loved, to make me feel significant, to make me feel validated, to entertain me, and to keep me charged up. And this was the idea that, you know, God is kind of like the genie in the bottle kind of thing, you know. And, and the problem with this is, and we're going to see this as, again throughout this passage, that when bad things inevitably happen, what do they think? They think, where's God? You know, there's no God, there's no Jesus, because if there was really God or Jesus, this bad stuff wouldn't be happening in my life. And they miss the scriptures. They don't see the scriptures correctly. They've never learned the scriptures correctly. And this idea of deism, that God is this remote, distant figure. He exists out there somewhere, but he's really not that personally involved in our lives, except when I need him you know, to, to do something for me, then he should be. And even in Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches, we can fall into this trap. And I think the way that I see most of the time that churches fall into this trap is through a steady diet of what I want to call felt need preaching. And what I mean by felt need preaching is that, that, that scriptures aren't really preached as we do, which we start with a book of the Bible, and we just teach through a book of the Bible, because you're going to hit a lot of different subjects. You're going to hit a lot of different things that you need. But we could, as a lot of churches do, just do a four to six week series on a felt need that we have, you know, financial freedom or successful relationships or how to feel better about yourself. And typically these messages center on just list of things to do. But the problem is, and it's, it, we, we all want happiness in our marriage, in our relationships. We want our relationships to be, be good and healthy. That, that's just a universal desire. We want our finances to be solid. Those are not bad things. But the bad thing is when we put those good things as God things and we make those things what our life is about. 
rather than digging down underneath and seeing what the gospel has to say about these things, what Jesus has to say about these things, how that, how that Jesus impacts every one of these areas of our lives and how the gospel speaks to those. And so I do a lot of marriage counseling. And the problem is oftentimes that you have one spouse who's on board with following Jesus. You have another spouse who may not be so on board with following Jesus. What do you tell this person? Do you tell them, how, how do you do, tell them, okay, you'll find your happiness one day if you just do these four gospel principles? That's not the case. The case may be that, that God puts you in a situation where you're going to have to depend upon Him and seek after Him and, and rely upon Him because you understand that unless He supernaturally intercedes, this is not going to fix itself. But God didn't abandon you into this situation, God is allowing this situation for your good and his glory ultimately to show that he's more than enough to satisfy even in tough situations, difficult situations, bad health, difficult marriages, bad financial situations. Even if they're self-inflicted, God can work in those situations and God can reveal himself in those situations. And so we need to be careful because this crowd that was following Jesus, we're going to see that so many of these superficial disciples just abandoned him because truthfully, they didn't love him, they didn't worship him, that they wanted something from God, they didn't want God himself. They didn't want Jesus himself, they wanted something from him. And this is so prevalent in our society, and there's so many churches that preach, and, and you hear me talk about this a lot as well, the prosperity gospel. This gospel that says that God wants to give you health and wealth and prosperity, and all you need to do is just do the right things and dream the big dreams and have these goals, and then God's just going to come along, and he's just going to bless those things because you're a moral person. You're a good person. Do not buy into that false preaching. Because it draws big crowds because people love, you know, yeah, sure, I can add some Jesus to my life and things are going to be prosperous and good. Count me in. I'm all for that. But that is not what the gospel is about. And the gospel, any gospel message that focuses more upon materialism than our spiritual benefits is not a true gospel. And that's exactly what the people of this time were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah to save them from the Romans looking for a Messiah who was going to be the conquering king who would come in and set them back up to the prominence that they once had. And why on Palm Sunday did they all desert Jesus after, after they said Hosanna the highest and then all of a sudden they see Jesus arrested by those who were against him and he's being led to the cross and they abandon him because this was not the Jesus they expected. This was not the Messiah they expected. And the thing is, the suffering of Jesus is our example when we suffer. When God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus for his people, and Jesus suffered, that wasn't God's plan B. God wasn't saying, okay, the people didn't accept him, so now plan B, Jesus to the cross. This was the plan from the beginning. This was God's plan. And so as Jesus suffered, and we can't have a front row seat at the cross, and buy into this health, wealth, prosperity sort of gospel that's so prevalent today. We see Jesus suffer. And we follow in Jesus' steps. And if he can suffer, we can suffer. And so the plot, last week Roy talked about this. Great job last week, Roy, on the sermon. But in verse 6 and 7, uh, right before our passage today, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, it says in verse 6, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. You see, they, they hated Jesus. They did not like that Jesus was disrupting their system. But, you know, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus was aware, aware of their plotting. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were talking about. But it wasn't his time. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And you see these just great crowds of people just follow him to these remote areas where he was preaching and teaching. And in fact, this idea of great crowds meant thousands of people. And it's really emphasized on this passage. And they came from many different places. If you look at this map here of Palestine, you see that Jesus went way up here to the north. 
And people were coming from all over the place, as far as 85 miles away, in order to hear Jesus and to have healing by Jesus. And so they were coming from all of these areas. And Jesus' popularity was growing and growing so much that he couldn't go to the population centers of Israel in order to preach. He had to go to these remote areas, and he had to get out of these, uh, these population centers in order for him to be able to preach. Because we talked about this, that, <coughs> that his purpose for coming wasn't to heal people. He healed people to authenticate his message. His purpose was to come to present the gospel and to show himself for who he truly was and to reach the lost sheep of Israel and ultimately the Gentiles as well. But the Gospel of John chapter 6 tells us that the crowds wanted to even force him. It uses that literal word in in John 6 to force him to be their physical king. And when Jesus was arrested and when Jesus was put on trial, the people abandoned him. Because that wasn't what they expected. This is not the Jesus that we wanted. This is not the Jesus that we thought he would be. We wanted something different, totally different. A Jesus who would do what we want him to do. And so make that personal in your own life. When Jesus doesn't give you what you need, do you find yourself rejecting him? You know, that's not right. I do this and this and this. I'm better than them. They don't even go to church. You know, they're, they're, they raise their family, and I, and I try to do the right things. Why are you not coming through for me, Jesus? And it's all a materialistic, physical way of looking at the gospel. But Jesus, in verse 9, what did he do? He told his disciples, he said, I've got to do the main thing here. And he said, he said get a boat ready, because the crowds were crushing in on him for this healing and so he said, I need to separate myself. So he did this several times in the Gospels. He would actually push out slightly from shore so he could preach and accomplish what God had called him to accomplish, which was preaching the truth. And the people were able to, he was able to separate from the people in order to accomplish this. And so do you see Jesus, even though he was all about doing miracles and he needed to authenticate his message and prove who he was, the truth was his main thing, as this shows, was that to teach and to preach. But people were called up in this, as you can imagine, and as we all would be, into this electrifying environment. And they wanted to have God do these things for them through Jesus. But the truth is they missed Jesus. They missed God himself in their presence with them, and the majority of them missed God standing in front of them. God was with them, and they had little interest in worshiping him. What could he give me? What could he do for me? And that's ultimately the prosperity gospel. Physically save us. Fulfill our dreams. Do something for us, God. And we forget the truth. We forget what the truth is all about. I saw this played out in a real... I've used this illustration before, but it's such a good, obvious illustration for what happens, and adults were much more polished about this, but the truth is it happens as well. Uh, Once, as a student pastor, I was doing a a lesson on uh, being sacrificial, on uh, loving others more than yourself, being a giver, and I I did this lesson, pointing to the gospel, pointing to Jesus, the ultimate giver, who gave his life for us, you know, just laid it out there for them, finished up in prayer, and said, hold on, don't move from your seats, okay? I was able to stop in Tallahassee today and get a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, but I only, I only could get 12. And so it's first come, first serve, and I opened the box. And I promise you, I had kids, boys, diving over chairs, pushing people out of the way, grabbing three and four themselves to, to, so they could have those, ignoring all else around them. That's the way we operate, right? I mean, they're much more raw and... and, and it's more obvious in their selfishness, but we're all like that in a way. It's what's in it for me kind of gospel. And when God isn't fulfilling my expectations based on my thoughts, what should happen, then what do I do? I question his goodness or I question him completely. Let me just give you a, an expression before we move on in this passage. Let me give you just, just this quote. It's great. I think this came from Paul Tripp. It says, Whatever desires rule your heart, will ultimately control your words and behaviors. Whatever desires rule your heart will ultimately control your words and behaviors. 
You see, what's in your heart will reveal itself. And when there's selfishness, when the gospel's about you, when there's no true worship of Jesus, you can kind of fake that for a while, but ultimately it will begin to show itself. And we all fight this battle. I don't, I don't care how closely you're following Jesus. We all had to fight against this flesh that wants what it wants. I mean, if I go into the grocery store to pick up a few items and I head to the self-checkout lines, right, and, and they're backed up super deep and I'm looking around, I'm like, hey, is anybody in the store noticing the fact that I only have three items and they can like open a register for me immediately and, and help me out here because I deserve it. It's about me and I'm in a hurry. Right? I mean, nobody has that thought besides me that, like, why do I have to wait? Or you're driving in traffic, it's like, hey, I'm glad other people are paying taxes for the roads, but I really want you to clear out of the way and not be on the road so I can get where I'm going as fast as I want to get. And there should be nobody over a certain age driving because they drive too slow. You know, we all had these thoughts run through our head, if we're honest, that we all fight this anger that, that burns up in us when we don't get what we want and it's not done the way that we want to be done and where it's not delivered in the way that we want to be delivered. I can prove this because how many of you, even if you don't play the lottery, you dream about winning the lottery, all right? I mean, if you're honest, I'm not, don't raise your hands, but if you're honest, almost everyone in here has been guilty of that. You think, what would I do with that money? I would do such good things for the kingdom of God first and foremost, right? I could build grace a new church so they would not have to set up the chairs and the stuff. That would be my first priority. But truthfully, it's about our ease and our comfort because we would love life to be just whatever we want would happen would happen, that there would be no tension, no struggle, no difficulty in life. But that's not the gospel. That's not Jesus' life. And, and the crowds wanted that. They wanted the Messiah to run the Romans out, destroy the Romans, set up the kingdom, restore Israel to its prominence. And when that didn't happen, they turned on him. They turned on him. Let's be careful. As parents, we've talked a lot today about about kids and about generation and, and passing on to the next generation. Let's be careful in our parenting even that we don't just focus on the external behaviors and not focus on the heart of our child. And let's not let our pride get in the way because, again, this whole battle within ourselves, you know, we want our kids, as soon as we tell them something, to say, oh, wise father, thank you for that just wisdom that you provide to me in this situation. I will immediately act upon that and do everything that you've told me to do. Thank you again. I mean, that's the way we want. What do we do? If that doesn't happen, we get angry. We get mad. We're like, why are I not obeying and doing what I say? We want to take the easy way out instead of investing and building and getting to the heart. And as parents, we talked about losing that generation. As parents, it's hard work to lead our kids. It's difficult, and it's easy to push that off to a church or a school or a program rather than us taking the arduous task of doing it ourselves and building into the lives. And sure, we need the church, and we need other people to supplement into this for sure and speak into their lives, but it's our job first and foremost. And so what's in our heart will come out. And so if you're spiritually lazy, if you're not a giving person, if you're stingy, if you're angry a lot, if your unwillingness to lead your family, if, you're, if you hold bitterness in your heart toward people, what's happening? It's coming out of your heart. Your heart is revealing itself. And your heart is showing that maybe you're not following God as good as other people might think you are. Or you're not following God the way that even some people around you think you are. And so the desires of your heart have a way of making them, their, themselves out into your life. And so... Scripture says, life is about God. Life's about Him. And what do we say? We said, life is about us. Let's don't buy into this prosperity, even a soft version of this prosperity, that's about us and our desires. Going back to that John 6 passage where I said that they were literally wanting to force Jesus into being king. You know what Jesus did? At that point, Jesus began to do something pretty amazing. He began to thin out the crowd. He began, to, he began to talk about how that, hey, he wasn't there to save them from the Romans. He was there to save them from their sins. He wasn't this military general coming in, but he was offering them the bread of life, which would satisfy their soul. And in verse 66 of chapter 6, 
says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples, many of those who were in that crowd, who were loosely following Jesus, getting what they could from Jesus, they went away because this is not what we're about. This is not what we want. And they turned from Jesus. But scattered in that big crowd of people that were following Jesus, in that was some real disciples, true disciples, among the superficial disciples. Let's call them the committed disciples. These were real disciples, verse 13 through 18, who had faith to see that Jesus was who he said he was, and they wanted Jesus, not just what Jesus had to offer. And up to this point, the 12 at some level were just kind of scattered in the mix of other disciples. We learn other places that there were at least 70 people who truly followed Jesus. I'm sure there were more, but there was at least those who were truly committed and there for the right reason. And then if you skip down to verse 11 and 12, and we'll come back to the other verses in just a second, that he, he, he goes up onto a mountain and he calls those whom he desired and they came to him. So he's getting down to the core people in his ministry. These are the 12, the, the disciples, the apostles. And so he calls them, verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. So he handpicks, he says, out of the group of people, even many of these were committed disciples, but he picked 12 specifically, one, two, three, and he had called some earlier, but he added to this to come up with the number 12, and he, he picked them, it says in this passage, for three reasons. He wanted them to be with him, very close be with them, teach them, disciple them. He, he was the teacher. They were the apprentice. They were learning from him, and we're going to see why that's so important in just a minute. He sends them out. He says, watch me do it. Now you go and do it. He sends them out to do the preaching, and he gives them authority to cast out demons. And so he calls his 12 disciples. And this wasn't just a random number that he came up with. What he's doing here, this is a special status, a special commissioning. And every Jew at this point would have been clearly aware of the fact that this number 12 and the significance it had. 12 tribes for Israel. And Jesus, what he was doing, he was saying, look, I'm setting up um, my kingdom. I'm showing you God's kingdom. I'm picking 12 12 people to represent the 12 tribes. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 21, I don't think this verse is on the screen, verse 14, it tells about the new Jerusalem and it says, the walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this is something very significant, very, a very clear, vivid picture that Jesus is sending to those who are following him as he picks the 12. And you may not realize this, but you're in great debt, and I'm in great debt to the 12 apostles, to the disciples of Jesus. Why are you in great debt to them? Jesus commissioned them to carry on his work after he ascended back into heaven. And the manner of their life, the manner of their death, 10 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. And Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned to death, history tells us as well. And not only were they martyred for their faith, which shows that Something radical, amazing had happened. But all of them were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. As we celebrate Resurrection Sunday next Sunday, you can rest on the fact that when Jesus called these guys, he was calling people who were going to be eyewitnesses to something that literally happened, that he rose from the dead after dying on the cross. He didn't almost die, and they fake it, and they, they restore him to health and get him back. Jesus died. They were there. They saw it happen. And in fact, in Acts chapter 1, when they go to pick the replacement for Judas, it tells us, as they're trying to determine how to choose Judas's replacement so they would have 12, it says, and so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were there with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. So they were there from the beginning. So there was other disciples who had been following Jesus who were committed. They weren't just part of this core. And in verse 22, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. How awesome is that? That these guys, this guy who was picked, had to meet the criteria of being an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. 
And so be careful, you know, if you fall into this spirituality that's really more based upon your feelings and based upon Jesus, what he can do for you, and and you kind of really probably separate out the fact that Jesus physically and literally rose from the dead because you've created this spirituality with yourself, and, and, and truth is pretty much relative to the fact that however you feel at the moment, and you forget that there's concrete historical eyewitnesses who observed Jesus after he died. And that's a game changer. We're going to talk about that a lot next Sunday. That's a game changer. If Jesus rose from the dead, and there were eyewitnesses there who saw it, that's a pretty big deal. That's pretty amazing. And you can't follow Jesus like a lot of people follow Jesus if he is who he says he is. And I don't want to preach next week's sermon, but that's where we're going next Sunday. How, how, can, you, how can you not follow a guy who rose from the dead? How can you just be casual? Say, uh, if I get around to it, I'll follow. Or I'm loosely following. I'm back in the back of the line. I don't really want to be passionate about Jesus. If he rose from the dead and there were eyewitnesses, that, that's a game changer. And then Acts 2.42 says that we should continue in the apostles' doctrine. And we receive, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we receive the word of God from them. And we're told to accept what they wrote as commandments of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. I don't have all these verses on the screen. If you want to write those down and look at them later, you're welcome to. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, Acts 2, 42. And then in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, tells us that these apostles were entrusted the message and to drift away from their message is to drift away from salvation. To drift away from the message of the apostles is to drift away from salvation itself. So what does that look like to us? It's right here. This is what it looks like to us. That's why we value the scriptures so much. Because these were the words of Jesus passed on to the apostles, eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. And this is the very words that we have to live by and to follow Jesus and know his will and his plan. Yet so many people, they want to find God's will by, how do I feel at the moment? Or, you know, what seems right to me with ignoring God's word and the incredible principles and promises that are found here, the words of the apostles given by Jesus for us so that we can know God and so we can know Jesus Christ. And so, again, go back to your actions, show where your heart is. Do you really value the word of God. You're here. That's awesome. You're here to hear it preached. But if you value it, you probably should be in it and you should be reading it and it should be making a difference in your life because these are the very words of Jesus given to the apostles for our benefit. In fact, I do have this scripture on the, on the screen, Second Timothy 3.15. Paul tells Timothy how from a child you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Why does that matter? which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures were able to make him wise to salvation. You know what's so amazing about that passage is this. He's referring there to the Old Testament. The Old Testament. The Old Testament. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, how the Pharisees knew the scriptures, but they didn't recognize Jesus because their hearts were far from the right place. It was about them. It was about God do for me rather than God, I want to do for you. I'm going to live for you. And so scripture tells us in, in quite a few places, the law and the prophets all point to Jesus. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so Second Timothy, he tells Timothy, you're acquainted with these words that show you salvation, that bring salvation, that make you wise to salvation. And then Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, speaking of the New Testament, the scriptures that we have uh, in the right side of your Bible, he says this, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. So, the word of God makes us wise to salvation. It prepares your heart. And the Holy Spirit works 
in your heart because the word has been given and it softens us. It shows us it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about my life for me. It's my life for his glory, for his honor. And that's what the word does. It softens us. It shows us our need for a savior. And so do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, you're going to love his word. And it may be a growing process for sure. If you're a newer believer, you love Jesus, but you know, you're, you're struggling here. God also gives you a community of believers to help you understand the word. And you come here and you're preaching that you hear the word being preached. Because the danger is, and this fourth group here as we close shows us, even though no one here we can definitively say is a, a, a demon, I don't believe, um, verses 11 and 12 says, that whoever the unclean, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You're the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. And we'll talk more about demons in more detail later because this theme comes up several times. But for today, I just want to make the point that Jesus, one, wasn't ready to reveal himself uh, at, at this point, as we said earlier. And so he told these demons to be quiet. Plus, he didn't want their testimony. But doesn't it just kind of like hit you really solid, like right between the eyes, the fact that these demons were well aware of who Jesus was. He's the Son of God. People, the people of the crowd wasn't saying that. They weren't ready to declare him the Son of God. He was the conquering king to run out the Romans. But the demons recognized that he was the Son of God. And that reminds me of a passage in James 2.19. He says, you believe there's one God? You do well. I mean, you almost hear the sarcasm. Even the demons believe and they shudder at that. You believe in Jesus? That's a great first start because the demons even believe that. But do you love him as your Savior and Lord? Does your actions show that your heart really loves Jesus? The demons knew him. The demons could witness to him and testify him before all the people could do it. Yet... Obviously, that's not salvation. So, where do you find yourself? The crowd? Is your attitude what's in it for me? You have to admit that's, that's the truth. Especially younger people in here. Just really do not buy into that lie. Because the world, let me just speak real candidly. The world offers a lot of really, really awesome and cool things. Doesn't it, adults? It has everything that we could ever want and more. But all the things that we think we want, ultimately, when we put those things up as God, they always disappoint. They always destroy us. Because good things don't make God things. And you have to keep these things in their rightful place. And you look around at culture, you look at society, and you see what happens when you begin to put the man-made things, as Romans 1 talks about, up there in place of God. And you demote God down to just a being to meet your every need and be there for you to meet your every whim. Reject what the culture says, this consumeristic attitude that says even church should be all about me, what my felt needs are. You know, structure this around me, what I want. And there's a lot of churches that will do that for you and make you feel good about yourself. But I'm afraid many of them are leading people straight to hell. The committed, people who know there's a war, they know there's a battle, but they're following. They're following after Jesus at some level. Maybe they're toward the back of the line, but they're following after Jesus. And then those who are truly following Jesus, they're following the, the words of the apostles and prophets, those that Jesus gathered around and said, here, I want you to, to share my testimony to the people that follow behind. Love the word. Love the words of Jesus. And then the condemned people, like the condemned demons, you believe, but there's real no desire, honestly, to follow Jesus. Where do you find yourself in that group? I would like to say that, you know, over the years, I've dealt with many people who really struggle with this idea of assurance of salvation. They hear a message and they're like, oh, maybe I just don't believe enough. You know, and they come and they're fearful and they're like, I don't know whether I'm in or not in. Let me just give you some, some, some truths from Scripture here. Do you believe that God exists, as Hebrews says, and he rewards those who seek him? 
Hebrews 11.6. God exists, and he rewards those who diligently and earnestly seek him. Jesus is God. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus rose from the dead. You do embrace those facts of Christianity. The facts are critical. They're important. But you don't stop there because there's a lot of people that have the facts. But do you find great joy in Jesus? Do you find joy in the gospel? You're not perfectly, but when you look at the gospel and you say, Whoa, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Woe is me, a sinner, condemned, deserving of eternal separation from you, a holy and perfect God. If not for the cross, I would be damned forever. And see, it wells up a passion, a desire in us, because we understand that we fall short of the glory of God. There's nothing in us that deserves anything. We all are in the same place, sinners deserving of hell. But for God's mercy, he saved us. God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, he reached out to us. Amazing. So do you see Jesus as glorious and wonderful? Maybe you're growing into that. If you're younger, it it, it takes time to grow more and more into it, but you're pursuing, you're stepping into it, step by step by step. And then do you love the church community? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? 1 John 3, 14 You know you've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Can't get any clearer than that. I love my fellow Christians. I love the fellow believers. There are warts and imperfections and all. I I love other Christians. Why? Because they tell me what I need to hear. They kick me when I need kicked. They encourage me when I need encouraged. They lift me up when I need lifted lift up. You see, sometimes the, the community of believers isn't as fun to love as your friends in other places because they're probably not ever going to call you out for sin unless you go too far, right? And then they'll say, hold on, hold on, now you're getting a little crazy. Just go far enough that you won't get called or you know, it's not too bad. They'll, they'll tell you those things, but truthfully, they won't care enough about you because they don't know Jesus. They may say they know Jesus, but they don't know Jesus because the brothers and sisters in Christ, they care enough about you to call you out when you need called out, to encourage you when you need encouraged, to teach and preach the word to you that maybe you don't need to hear, want to hear at the moment, but you need to hear at the moment. That's the community of believers. Do you love that? doesn't mean you always have to like it, but do you love the fact that you have other people who care for you? And then also on this idea of assurance of salvation, you know, oftentimes when we have unconfessed sins, just habitual sin in our life, and we're having trouble getting, getting a handle on that, and, you know, oftentimes, what do we do? When we need the church community the most in situations like that, we run the other way. Because we don't want people to really know us, because if they know us, they'll reject us. And then what will they think of me? But that's why we're here, to help one another, encourage one another, not so we can bask in our authenticity, but so we can love each other and help each other as we do confess our sins to one another and pray for each other so we can find healing in that. So it's just not about having people to talk to, your therapist. It's having people who are going to show you through Scripture how to get out of the situation you're in and have victory over the situation you're in. Oftentimes, guilt can lead to weakened assurance. Maybe some of you overthink things. You have a lot of false guilt. You need to probably talk to people about that and get some help in that area. Disobedience to the simple commands of Scripture can lead to lack of assurance. Inconsistency. Just your spiritual disciplines are not there Lack of effort of growing. You're just not really making any effort to grow. You're not making any effort to really grow in your faith. Where are you at today? These passages really push us to really contemplate our lives. And I think God puts me here to remind myself and you what really matters in life because it's so easy to forget what really matters, isn't it? We forget it's, it's, it's so easy to take our eyes off Jesus and off the cross. Let's make sure that we keep him first in all areas of our life. As I pray, I just want to you close your eyes, and I just want to read Second Peter 1, which gives us a great passage about 
assurance of salvation. And the band, just hold off until I'm finished before you come up. Just Everybody, just put their, their minds in an attitude of prayer. Even close your eyes if necessary to remove distractions. 2 Peter 1, 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the simple desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted and he's so blind, he's forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Father God, I pray that you'll give us your Holy Spirit initiative and your under, our, a greater understanding of grace so that we can take all that you've given us and we can make every effort to begin to grow in our faith with greater passion than we want to grow as a fisherman or as a golfer or as a parent or as a husband or wife. Whatever things that are our passions in our heart, may these pale in comparison to our passion of knowing you and following you. God, we all need this. We all need just a heart check today. As we prepare for this week where we look at your crucifixion and we begin to put our minds in first century where you went to the cross and you carried your cross and carried our burden, our shame, our sin, and you were nailed to a tree for our sin. And the very same people who said, Hosanna in the highest, said, crucify you, crucify you. Because by their actions, they proved they weren't really your disciples. And God, I pray you'll just make us a church eager and zealous to love you and love others and make a difference in this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.